Elections are operated by local officials, so methods vary all over the country. At the federal level, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission encourages innovation each year with a program called the Clearinghouse Awards. Nominations are now open for 2022. Here with more on how the commission looks at elections and its local innovators, EAC Chairman Thomas Hicks. Mr. Hicks, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. So you have a way for local election officials then to send in what they have done in a given year. Tell us how this works and who evaluates what it is that they have put in. So this, I think, is one of the great program that we operate. We allow election officials to nominate themselves for clearing what we call the Cleary Awards. And it's been around since 2016. And basically what we allow for folks to do is recognize best practices in elections and celebrate accomplishments of election officials nationwide. We allow other election officials and the folks on our four boards to be the judges of that. So they have to volunteer to do that. So they're being judged by their peers. It's basically something to say, hey, we're doing great things, recognize us. And the great piece of that is that other states and jurisdictions can emulate that as we move forward. So best practices is part of our clearinghouse function so that other states can see what other states are doing and then emulate that as well. And there are different categories for the awards and the clearies, the clearinghouse awards. One of them is best practices in recruiting, retaining, and training poll workers. And that's kind of interesting because everything devolves to them and their integrity. And, you know, we've seen videos of people allegedly doing this or that and, you know, all this kind of stuff that's been around the last couple of national elections anyway. What are some best practices for getting people in such a way that, you know, they're engaged in the job and really understand what it is they have to do? Well, I think of it as it's a way to serve and give back to the country. So for election officials to recognize other election officials for the recruitment of poll workers, retaining poll workers, because there's a huge aspect of if I serve once, am I going to serve twice? And if I'm going to serve the third time and then training those poll workers. So they realize that what they're doing, they have to put their political beliefs at the door and serve in a nonpartisan way because everyone who's eligible to vote should be able to vote independently and privately without any sort of partisan piece of that when they go into the polling place. And I guess, too, then, is part of the awards for innovation on maybe how the entrances to polling places can be organized and arranged. I'm just thinking of, in my county, I had to run a gantlet of people thrusting signs at me. Everyone was complaining about this. They were officially or technically outside of the zone where there could be no politicking, but it felt like you were being rushed through competing, shouting parties, throwing banners at you before you got through that doorway frame. Well, I'm sorry that you had to deal with that, <laughs> but I think that's a price that we pay for a democracy and expressing our First Amendment rights. But like you said, there is a barrier that's placed in all jurisdictions that you can't campaign within. And also, I think that there are other aspects for folks who, who might not want to go through that to be able to either vote by mail or vote by absentee, uh, should they not want to vote in person and go through that sort of aspect. We are actually having a hearing to discuss a piece of what we got from this past uh, appropriations bill of $1 million to recruit poll workers for the college poll worker recruitment program. So we're going to listen to innovations from around the country and other aspects from 
election officials and private sector folks on what they've done to recruit poll workers, whether or not that was before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and after, to see what sort of things have changed, how they've changed moving forward, and what can we do in the future. But from the Cleary Awards given for the 2021 election cycle, anything stand out for you that the judges felt, wow, this is worthy of calling out? I think that the... One that really stands out to me was the one down in Tallahassee, Florida, which was the conflict resolution traffic light, which basically when an issue came up, was that a green light of how you deal with it, or yellow light of how you deal with it, or red light of stop it, do not do that, and this is how you deal with that. And that's actually Leon County, which is Tallahassee. I mean, I believe that's the one that won for that one. Other than that, I think of it as, you know, anything and everything that folks can put out there. And we added one other piece to that as well to say that you might not win, but you might get an honorable mention. And so if you get an honorable mention, then you can also, you know, tout that as well. And as my fellow commissioners and I go around the country, I think one of the best parts of the job is to actually give these folks the award in person. And we are able to put a few of those pictures in our annual report when we've been able to do that. We're speaking with Thomas Hicks. He's chairman of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. And I wanted to ask you about one more category, and that is improving accessibility for voters with disabilities. I would think that's really something that's come a long way, given some of the technology that's available now that most jurisdictions don't rely solely on pencil and paper. The fact is that election officials have come a long way, like you said, in terms of being able to help those who have disabilities with elections overall. One of the greatest things that I remember seeing is that in our enacting legislation where it says that voters who have disabilities are able to do so to be able to vote independently and privately. And so as we've moved forward, when since our enacting legislation in 2002, this great thing has come along called a smartphone. And so people can use their smartphones to get more information and, and so forth. You can't still vote using your smartphone, but you can get a lot more information and you can get a lot more access to the polling place and so forth. But I think that as we move forward, there's going to be more innovations as technology changes to allow for people to be able to vote independently and privately, whether or not that's using headphones and so forth uh, when they go into the polling place and other aspects as well. And I would imagine that with the electronic voting machines, now that people are beginning to understand they can be secured and can be operated in a trustworthy manner, that there's some way that perhaps haptic feedback or as you mouse over or pen over with audio feedback to headphones or something, these could be upgraded because they're essentially computers to help people that could use those different types of feedbacks depending on what their disability is. You're 100% correct with that. And my fellow commissioners and I voted in 2021 for new standards for voting equipment, which makes them even more secure, makes them more accessible, and moves the ball forward. And hopefully companies will start building to the next generation of voting equipment to allow for folks who have disabilities to be able to vote independently and privately using additional equipment as well. And so I think that as we look forward to the 2022 Cleary Awards, that we'll see some great innovations by local election officials on how they were able to 
have folks vote independently and privately, and they'll be recognized by their fellow election officials. And by the way, when a local election board or commissioner gets a clearinghouse award, is there any money with that or they just get their picture with the EAC and maybe a plaque? They'll get a plaque, but they won't get any money with it. So, But I think that they get good bragging rights and some other aspects as well, but there's no money associated with it. And what does the commission do to promulgate these best ideas so that everyone can see them? So we put them in our annual report. We talk about them when we go to different parts of the country. In our annual board meetings, which we have for the four boards that we have, these folks are recognized as well. So part of our clearinghouse function is making sure that information is put out there. So the winners are on our website and a lot of those things as well. One of the best pieces that I remember saying is the I voted stickers and how people like to see those stickers. And people actually get mad when they walk out of a polling place and don't get their I voted sticker because they want to show, hey, I exercise my right to democracy. And this is me showing you as I go to work or I go to school or I go to the grocery store. And would you say as a final question over the years and decades, and especially as we get into this highly intensive technological century that we're in, that the election methodologies might be narrowing from, say, a place like New York City, which pioneered election machines back in the 1930s, I think, and the rural areas, which might still use paper and pencil exclusively, is all of this kind of converging into one national standard, even though it is a locally administered activity? Yes and no. I think that as we move towards more national standards for federal elections, I think that the states still run the election, so they can still dictate how those elections are run, but they have to adhere to certain standards to make sure that folks can vote independently and privately and to ensure that they are able to cast their votes and have those votes counted accurately. So you might see, you know, back in the 1930s when New York was innovative with those lever machines, that those are no longer the gold standard. But as we move forward with the new voting system guidelines, which jurisdiction will be the new gold standard as we move forward through the 21st century. Thomas Hicks is chairman of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more on the Clearies at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Vote for the Federal Drive. Download the podcast version wherever you get your shows. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. 
And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they are, they're really heroes. And um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the stage or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give, uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so, uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics and, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, 
I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.